0: Welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. My name is Luke Stamps, and I'm on the Board of Directors at CBR. Uh, CBR is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to the retrieval of the great tradition for the sake of contemporary renewal of the Baptist Church. And um, I'm joined today by a very special guest, uh, Pastor Sam Renahan, and I'll let him say a bit more about himself in a minute. But if you like what you hear here on the podcast Uh, It'd be great if you would subscribe uh, to the YouTube channel or uh, to to any of the the streaming services that you have and and help us spread the word about the content that we're producing here at CBR. Also, you can visit our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com for more information about CBR. So again, we're joined by uh, Sam Renahan today to talk about um, a very important book, but I think a very underappreciated book uh, in Baptist history a book by a man named Nehemiah Cox in the 17th century. Uh, The full name of the book is a discourse of the covenants that God made with men before the law. And even that's not the full title. You know, these these 17th century book titles go on and on for the whole um, title page. Uh, But anyway, I think it's an important book for us to consider today as we think about uh, a Baptist biblical theology, how we put together the covenants of scripture and especially how that particular way of reading scripture undergirds uh, Baptist distinctives, especially a belief in believers only baptism. Uh, But before we get into the book, uh, I wanted to uh, introduce uh, uh, Sam Renahan, let him say a little bit about himself. So if you would just kind of tell us uh, who you are, what you do, uh, maybe even kind of what you see as your calling uh, in life.
1: Hi, Luke. Thanks for including me in the podcast here. Um, I am a pastor. Uh, of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church here in La Mirada, California. We're just down the road from Biola University. And in addition to full-time ministry, I also like to research and write in Baptist history and Baptist covenant theology. And so a book like Nehemiah Cox's is really an intersection of some of my um, most enjoyed um, pursuits uh, of research and, and writing. Uh, I grew up in the Northeast in Massachusetts, but I've spent most of my life here in Southern California. And my wife Kim and our son Owen, we li- we all live here together um, in La Mirada while I pursue full time—not pursue, but practice full time full time ministry.
0: Yeah, that's great, and uh, so grateful to have you on. Uh, I know that uh, we've we've appreciated your your um, many pursuits and helping us recover um, the the seventeenth century particular Baptist tradition. I mean, there's not many people doing. Uh, as good a work as you're doing to just help um, re- recover some of that, just to help us uh, know what what's going on in those important decades of the 17th century. Um, so I, I, I'm also curious to, to hear a bit more about this, um, these kinds of projects. I mean, I, the book, the, the version of this book that we recommended, we also had a, an online version of it. But the, the, uh, the version that, that I've been reading uh, is published by Reformed Baptist Academic Press uh, and it's it includes another work, which we'll get to in just a second, um, uh, an exposition of a particular section in Hebrews by John Owen, John Owen, the great uh, Puritan divine who wrote a multi-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. And there's an important section of that, um, uh, of, of the text of Hebrews that's relevant for this. So that gets paired with Cox and it's, and it's uh, published as Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ. Um, and... Uh, you've been a part of these kinds of projects. I noticed that your your father James Renahan was one of the editors on this book. Um, I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit to the degree you you're, you're familiar with it. How did this book come to be, and why pair Cox with Owen, who is a Pado Baptist?
1: Yes, it's <clears throat> it's interesting to to realize that the resources that we have now in 2022, if you just go back. Ten years, <laughs> most of that was not available, and l- most of it wasn't even known. Um, if you go back twenty years, it just it quickly drops off the resources. The seventeenth century and eighteenth century resources that we now have in in great availability um, were not as well known, were not available. And so, as these kinds of things became more known and more available, at least to certain people like my my dad or Rich Barcelos and others, Um, they said, of all the things that we can reprint, we think that Cox's work on covenant theology should be a priority, Um, because there was a general feeling that Baptists had a lack uh, of of knowledge about and appreciation for the history of covenant theology within the Baptist tradition. Hmm. So many people have thought, just out of ignorance that covenant theology, well, that's something that Paedo Baptists or Presbyterians, that's what they do. And we, we reject Baptists reject covenant theology, which is, is just untrue. Um, And so to help Baptists recover their covenantal heritage, uh, publishing Nehemiah Cox's work was considered to be probably the best candidate to get, to get that moving. And then why, Why, therefore, include something like a portion of John Owen's Hebrews commentary? Well, more and more study has shown, uh, or research has shown, that the Congregationalists' covenant theology was very, very similar to that of the particular Baptists in a lot of ways. And it was similar to theirs on Point's where the particular Baptists disagreed with the Presbyterians. So the Congregationalists are sort of in between the Presbyterians and the particular Baptists disagreeing with the particular Baptists in some ways and agreeing with the particular Baptists in some ways against the the more Presbyterian covenant theology. And so that's one reason why a Congregationalist uh, would really, go well with a a particular Baptist presentation of covenant theology, but more specifically with Cox in particular. Um, As you mentioned, the title of the book is a discourse of the covenants that God made with men before the law, before Moses. So Cox's book only goes up to to Abraham. And Cox says in his introduction that he stopped there because when he was writing in the early 1680s, late 1670s, early 1680s, Owen was producing his volumes on Hebrews. And Nehemiah Cox says, you know, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Cox says, just go read Owen on Hebrews 8 to 10. And that's what I would say. He just says, there you go. And so that's why Cox stopped at, the, at God's dealings with Abraham. But in this edition, we said, let's add Owen's, we, I wasn't involved in this, but um, the editors said, let's add that portion of Owen so that when Cox says, go read Owen, it's just right there in the same volume. Um, and so it's it's very intentional based on what Cox himself was recommending um, and to really complete the work. Cox's work is is incomplete, not because he failed to finish it, but because he's only intending um, to, to go to a certain point and John Owen takes it the rest of the way. So Nehemiah Cox would not agree with John Owen in some ways about God's dealings with Abraham, but he would agree with John Owen about God's dealings with Israel um, in the Mosaic Covenant.
0: Yeah, that's very, very helpful. And a book that we've mentioned on the podcast uh, is Matthew Bingham's Orthodox Radicals, which I'm sure you're familiar with, who's, um, you know, kind of a state of the art, I think, in, in, in many ways, um, of the origins of the particular Baptists uh, and just how um, organic the development of the Baptists were out of the theology that was already developing in, in the Congregationalist view um so there's a kind of uh, unstable uh, an instability i guess in the in the congregationalists as as you put it sort of this mi- middle way between the baptists and, and the presbyterians but the baptists are kind of saying well if you take your your own uh, congregationalist convictions to their logical conclusion if you really believe uh, that the church is to be made up of visible saints uh, then of course that means we should only baptize those who uh, are are uh, giving a credible profession of faith so Right. very helpful. I you know it's, it's a, it seems it's th- those of us who are uh, more um, are, who are Baptists and, and, and appreciate this, this uh, early Baptist work. It's a, it seems a bit tongue in cheek to include uh, Owen. I know uh, Pascal Deneau's book also treats Owen as um, a kind of Baptist exemplar. <laughs> uh, but of course, those of us who would make that kind of argument are not uh, ignorant of the fact that Owen was, of course, a Congregationalist and not a Baptist, but, uh, boy, his arguments uh, seem like they're on our side, right?
1: Yeah, and if you go back to the 17th century, the same debate was taking place. And I don't mean just the debate about baptism or covenant theology. I mean, the debate about whether Owen's theology justifies believers' baptism, Mm. because his Hebrews commentary was published in four volumes, and... In the third volume, um, the particular Baptists were already using that and, and Owen's comments on God's dealings with Abraham to say, look, he's already given over the argument to us before Owen ever published his volume on Hebrews 8, uh, with including Hebrews 8 to 10. So mm. before you get to the portion that Cox was recommending, the particular Baptists were already saying, you're welcome to reconcile the doctor's practice to his theology if you can. Mm. Um, and so... The Baptists said and saw this, this really does justify our principles. And so they're, they're not trying to be tongue-in-cheek. They're, they're just trying to say, look, this is what he has said, and this is where we believe that it leads. Now, Owen himself, of course, would would not have agreed, and you have to take that seriously. He's the author. Um, but, but there are trajectories, or what I've tried to use the word as tensions, uh, in, in Owen's covenant theology and his ecclesiology, which you already pointed to.
0: Yeah, that's great. Before we dive a bit more into, into uh, Cox's work, I also want to just uh, see if you could talk a little bit about some of the other projects that uh, you've been involved with. Um, I know some of them are published with uh, the Reformed Baptist Academic Press, others with Founders Press, uh, some stuff you've published independently. And I think, I, I hope that our, our readers will go look up your works because just, just because it's not from a, you know, a, a marquee publisher doesn't mean there aren't some really Helpful works that are being done. I know Matt and I both endorsed your latest book on um, the Christ descent. Um, But what are some other projects that you that you you've been involved with? You mentioned Rich Barcelos, who's a a friend of ours as well. Uh, It seems like there's this cadre of Reformed Baptists in California who are just doing some really good retrieval work of Baptists in the 17th century. So, what are some of those other works?
1: Yeah, I've been very interested in theology proper, um, and Rich Barcelos has been really uh, encouraging in the way that he's been uh, a leader in that. Um, And with James Dolezal also, and and other men, uh, Chuck Rennie and Stefan Lindblad, uh, just a really good core group of of guys um, who are very good on those, on theology proper issues and many other things, but especially on those issues. And so I've contributed a a little bit to that uh, with my God Without Passions, a reader, God Without Passions, a primer, and more recently deity, And decree. But in in those three works that I just mentioned of my own, I rely heavily and intentionally on quoting older theologians to say, look, look, this is what has been said, and this is how we can understand it. And this is why they're right, according to the scriptures. Mm. So in those books, you're not really going to find Sam Renahan. (laughs) You're going to find all these other older theologians. um, And that's where I think the strength lies in those books. So apart from theology proper, Baptist history and covenant theology has been Uh, A focus of my own. Um, So I do research on the Petty France Church, which is the church that Nehemiah Cox pastored. And I've published one volume of history on that, focusing on Nehemiah Cox. And I'm almost done with volume two on the Petty France Church with more in the future, Lord willing. Um, I've published on Baptist covenant theology historically in my dissertation from Shatter to Substance and uh, exegetically in the book, uh, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Kingdom. And more, more recently, yes, I, I published that book on the descent, which I really would love to see Baptists um, consider and embrace, uh, both based on scripture and and history, historical theology. And so that book is divided into two halves, the first half, a scriptural argument for the descent of Christ, and then the second half, a historical presentation of wh- what happened to this doctrine, where is it in, in the Protestant and Reformed and Baptist tradition, Um, and just trying to give people the information that they need to think it through for themselves and come to, to, come to a conclusion.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I I would just recommend that to all of our listeners to pick up that book uh, by Sam on the descent and maybe just that other pair of books that he mentioned on the doctrine of impassibility. Uh, So a primer on, on uh, impassibility, but then also a reader of just historic texts um, from Protestant divines on that, on that issue. So very good. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, Cox himself. So this is uh, uh, your area of expertise. Tell us a little bit about Nehemiah Cox. Who was he? Uh, what was his significance uh, for the particular Baptists in the 17th century? And why should Baptists today care about him?
1: Nehemiah Cox was a second-generation particular Baptist. So his father, Benjamin Cox, had been a, a parish priest in the Church of England and had left. Uh, the ministry of the Church of England to join uh, separatist churches. And he became, Benjamin Cox became a particular Baptist, and he signed his name to the first London Confession in its 1646 edition. So Nehemiah's father, Benjamin Cox, was already a particular Baptist uh, pastor. And Nehemiah Cox, therefore, grew up in particular Baptist churches in both Bedford and in London. And he was born around 1649 or early 1650. And uh, growing up as the son of a minister in ministry context, it seems that his father, Benjamin, invested in training Nehemiah, educating Nehemiah. His father was an Oxford graduate, because every, not everyone, but there are many instances of other authors, contemporaries of Nehemiah Cox, who make a point to call him learned. Uh, And when several of your peers call you that. It means means something. In their eyes, in their estimation, you stand out as being particularly well-educated and intelligent and and such things. And so Cox stands out in in a special way because his peers viewed him as being uh, an especially gifted young man. He was called to the ministry first by John Bunyan's church in Bedford. They called him as a gifted brother in the early 1670s. And then he was called to formal pastoral ministry in 1675 at the Petty France Church in London. So he moved from Bedford to London, and he stayed in London until he died in 1689. He died at the age of 40. He was a a fairly young man, and he was buried in Bunhill Fields. So he pastored at Petty France from 1675 until he died in 1689, alongside of William Collins, who was another um, well-educated Baptist minister, and together they were a really strong pair um, that were influential and and really useful and helpful to the Baptists in that time. Um, So just to to repeat a little bit, Cox is worth looking at today uh, because the literature that he left behind, especially this work in particular, um, was praised by his peers and his gifts were recognized from an early age and throughout his life and even after. Um, In my dissertation, I have these long footnotes of other people who have mentioned him or his work and they just, they praise it and they mm. say that it's it's really good. But I, I think there's one interesting thing that needs to be said about Cox's work on covenant theology. This one is that Benjamin Keach said, uh, he, he said first that it, I think this is the best work on the subject, but then he said, though the style is a little high for ordinary capacities. <laughs> so <laughs> here's what I think happened. I think that Cox read a lot of John Owen and kind of copied his style or or Mm. learned from his style because as you read Cox's work, it's true. The style is a bit heavy at times. It is a bit uh, complicated, perhaps unnecessarily so at times. And so it's not the easiest book to just read through. It's not the easiest book to just pick up and and get what he's saying. It does take some time to sit and, and chew on the arguments that he's making. The style is a bit high um for us ordinary capacities. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's that's a good point. And of course Cox um you know it's it's significant as a drafter of the uh the Second London Confession um you know which has been the this the the source really from all all uh, subsequent Baptist confessions um you know down to our own uh, to our own day. I mean even those who don't embrace the the full text of the so called 1689 Confession are indebted to it um, for the way that that statement has impacted um, Baptist history uh, in an American context as well. Absolutely. So, what, uh, what was the impetus behind this, this work? Um, why, why did Cox feel the need to write a book like this?
1: As I said, he was a second generation particular Baptist. So, that means that there was already several decades of literature uh, that had been published about. Baptism in particular and covenant theology as one of the arguments for uh, believers' baptism or credo baptism. And so Cox is picking up in a debate and a series of publications that had already been ongoing for some time. And Joseph Whiston was a Congregationalist minister who had been publishing and interacting with other particular Baptists in the 1670s. And Nehemiah Cox wanted to respond to Joseph Whiston. And so Cox's work regularly interacts with Joseph Whiston's writings. Uh, And I believe that Cox thought that it was necessary for him to write on this because some of the preceding literature in the particular Baptists was not that great. It was not that clear. It was somewhat muddled. And I I think that Cox thought he could more clearly present the argument with regard to the Abrahamic covenant, because that's as far as he goes. I think that he, he thought that he had something... Worth saying about this subject, um, whereas there had been really some some confusion or at least lack of clarity in some of the preceding publications. so i the impetus was certainly Joseph Whiston's works, but also I think some weaknesses in particular Baptist literature prior to Cox's publication.
0: Mm, that's helpful. Well, I want to get into some of the specifics about um, the different covenants and and how Cox's view and the other particular Baptists of the time compares and contrasts with what we might call classical covenant theology and then some other contemporary Baptist ways of reading the biblical covenants. But uh, I wanted to see if we could talk a little bit about um, Cox's hermeneutic more generally. And I'm especially interested uh, whenever I see um, Cox arguing for a, a mystical or a spiritual or a typical interpretation of certain Old Testament texts. Um, just to give one example, his, his treatment of Noah's Ark um, sees the, the story of Noah's Ark. Of course, he, he um, presumes uh, its truthfulness, its historicity, not in any way diminishing what we might call the historical sense of, of the Noahic narrative. But at the same time, he sees in Noah's Ark uh, a kind of multifaceted type. Uh, in one sense, he sees it as a type of, of Christ himself who delivers us from judgment. Uh, in another sense, he sees it as the church. Um, he refer- he refers to its dimensions as as human like in proportion. So he sees it as a, a kind of type of of a coffin in which we are buried. And of course, that that leads into the uh, the typology that the New Testament itself draws out. That Noah's ark was a kind of baptism, as Peter puts it. Uh, he even reads into the the, the language of of um, lining it with pitch. Uh, which, which the the word there in Hebrew is kafar, to cover it in pitch, which of course is used in atonement contexts, uh, and so it's just it's this rich spiritual reading, um, if I may be so bold, a rich allegorical reading of what's going on in um, in in this Noah's Ark story, which I find uh, fascinating uh, for for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because I think a, a lot of contemporary Protestants have lost sight of that mystical. Or spiritual readings the spiritual senses of scripture uh, again based on the historical sense certainly but but seeing in a full canonical context uh, these these layers of, of significance um, but I, I'm also curious to hear how how you would you would um, um, maybe there are other types you want to you want to mention as well but I'm curious how you would you would see that that strategy of interpretation and how it squares with what the confession says that 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 Cox himself uh, helps to 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 draft, uh, which if I can just quote it here, uh, this is at uh, the first chapter paragraph nine that the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one. Right. So this idea that there's not a a, a multiple, uh, there's not a, a multiple sense of scripture, but there's just one, uh, and at the same time, Reformed Baptists like Cox are perfectly willing to do something that looks at least very close to what the classical quadriga, the fourfold sense of scripture is doing. So talk me through that. How, how does what Cox is doing in practice square with what the confession says?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you're right that, that there needs to be work done to better teach this and present it historical theology from the perspective of historical theology, as well as just scriptural hermeneutics. So, um, and On the shelf behind you is Muller, Volume 2 on Scripture, which is the best place to go to, as far as I know, to to study this and what is meant by one sense versus manifold sense and such things. Um, You used a phrase that I think is very helpful. You said layers of significance. And so when the confession says that the, the sense of any text of Scripture is one, it's saying that the text says one thing. But based on what it says, it can have layers of significance in it. And so you could have multiple senses within the one sense of scripture. Mm. Uh, and so if it is presented as a type, then it has its original historical. It's an ark on the water rescuing a Noah and his family. And then another layer of significance within that, which is pointing to the other things that Cox brought out, which, which you enumerated. Mm. So that in, in that view, the one sense contains other senses, a mystical sense or a spiritual sense or a typ- typological sense. We could use a variety of different words. That's different from a, a more papist reading that would say every scripture has a fourfold sense, and we can read every scripture in this way and this way and this way and this way and each scripture has the, has this fourfold sense and then you end up with different meanings going different potentially different meanings going in different directions from any given text and the reformers said there's no certainty for building doctrine from any from these manifold readings from any and every given text the the text of scripture is the by the intent of the Holy Spirit speaks one sense. And we need to pay attention to the the literal word, meaning how is it written? How is it presented? The literary presentation. And if it's presented as just a historical narrative, that's what it is. But if it's presented as prophecy, then there's layers of significance. If it's presented as a history, in as a type, then again, there's layers of significance if it's presented as an allegory. So the, the reformers are very much about the literal historical sense but they recognize that the literal historical sense can have these layers of meaning within it. And I think maybe a good way to sort of help us think through what that looks like is is to compare the language of of the Second London Confession to the Westminster Confession in the realm of consequences. So the Westminster Confession talks about whatever is um, whatever is drawn from scripture by necessary consequence is also scripture, whereas the London Baptist Confession says whatever is necessarily contained uh, within scripture is also scripture. Uh, and while we would not reject what Westminster Confession is saying, I think it's a more a superior way to think of it. Mm. according to the way the Baptists express it to say the scriptures contain more than just what they say in words. And so we can argue to the doctrine of the Trinity and many other things through reason and deduction and consequences, Mm. because it's contained there. Whereas the way that the Westminster Confession expresses it, again, not rejecting what it's saying, but it, it has this potential to say there's scripture, and then we can reason to other things on top of it, other things in addition to it as opposed to what's contained in it. And so the, this, this, this comes full circle where you said, it seems like they're doing things that the, that we might see in the quadriga and the fourfold reading of scripture, an allegorical sense or a pedagog, an anagogical sense and other other things where the Baptist, or not just Baptist, Protestants, they will say this text can be used to show you know a practical application or this text refers to multiple things at the same time because they see all of that contained within the text of scripture itself and they're not imposing on it or building from it something else they're simply acknowledging the fullness uh, as this, as the confession says the true and full sense of any scripture uh, mm. is not manifold but but one and that that one fullness can then be unpacked in many ways and so sometimes it's hard to explain that that difference between so you're saying there aren't multiple senses, but then you're saying there are multiple senses. Mm-hmm. And it's a question of, are those fourfold senses imposed on any given scripture? Or do we find that certain scriptures, and indeed many scriptures, have, contain many different, not different, but contain many senses within themselves? And so when Cox talks about the mystical sense or the spiritual sense or other similar words, um, he's not in any way denying the confession or the Protestant way of reading the scriptures, he's working within that tradition uh, in, in a very normal way that we simply aren't accustomed to, um, we're not familiar with, and so it seems like a contradiction to us. And that, that's a really good question.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's the real, the real break hermeneutically is not with the Reformation per se, but with the Enlightenment. I think that's where you really kind of drill in on this sort of sparsely singular meaning of any given text. That if you go to the reformers and their heirs, people like Cox, um, y- yes, of course they're trying to ground those spiritual senses more deliberately in the literal sense, and they are responding therefore to the excesses of the the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, who really were pulling fanciful uh, um, allegories out of the air um, that weren't weren't transparently rooted in the biblical text. But you know, the for Cox, I mean, he he admits that like what noah or moses knew well of course we don't know i mean we, who knows what they were thinking uh but that's not really the central question anyway is what what was a, what was sort of in their present awareness but it's the full canon right that, that's where we yeah. that's the ultimate horizon for understanding what any given text means is not just what was sort of immediately accessible to the original author but what is what is what is the the fullness of scripture say at the canonical level? Because I mean that's how he begins the work as as the the hermeneutical priority of the New Testament, right? Yeah. Not not in any way diminishing the the light and truth of the Old Testament, but you interpret it in light of in light of the new. There's a a priority placed on the, the the fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ. So anyway, there's lots of other types like that. If you read the book, you'll find you know all these very interesting what he calls typical or mystical readings of of the Old Testament that I think are just extraordinarily fruitful and we we kind of cut ourselves off from them at our own um impoverishment you know if we think that you just got to stick with this kind of singular historical sense and don't bring in any anything else right um that's just not what the reformers or or their heirs were doing
1: and to to just add one thing to that if you think about the particular baptist tradition we have this huge, massive book called Tropologia mm-hmm. by Benjamin Keach, which is all about metaphor and allegory, and but identifying different kinds of, of tro- tropes, ways of speaking uh, in the scriptures that teach us different kinds of things. So it's, it's not foreign to the Baptist tradition. It's very much a part of the Baptist tradition. Yeah,
0: that's exactly right. Well, good. Let's uh, talk a little bit about um, the covenants then that he lays out here. So he kind of takes them one at a time beginning with Adam, uh, the covenant with creation, Noah, um, and Abraham. And I, th- I think Abraham is maybe, maybe the most significant one. That's what he spends the most time on. And I think that's the point of contention with the paedo So, Right. Um, but just a, a bit on the first two. I know some, some people today are a bit hesitant to refer to uh, the arrangement in the garden as a covenant. Uh, why does Cox tell us that we should treat this as a covenant arrangement?
1: One of the main arguments that Cox uses, uh, and he's drawing this from, again, common Protestant Reformed covenant theology, is the idea that man cannot earn anything from God by virtue of the creator, creator-creature relationship. When we, we owe God absolute obedience as creatures, we, have, we need to obey our God. He's our God. He created us. He made us. He's our Lord. But when we obey him, we don't deserve a reward, a recompense. Our, our obedience is not inherently valuable or meritorious to, to get us something. We don't indebt God when we obey him. And so when Cox looks at, at Genesis 2, and in, in light of the fullness of scripture, and he recognizes there's a promise of life, there's a reward of life that's that's suspended before Adam if he obeys, if he's faithful to a positive command about the trees, Cox is going to say, what is this? If, if God makes an arrangement with Adam that says, if you are faithful, if you obey, you will receive this reward, this recompense for your obedience as a matter of justice. Cox says, that is a covenant. That's just what that is. It's right there. And so he says, there's no need for nicety about terms where the thing itself is sufficiently manifest. Uh, and so Cox says you can call it what you want in a sense, but it's just, that's what it is. It's it's God making man's obedience valuable on, for a reward. And, and that's what a covenant does. And that's what a covenant is. So Cox, of course, uses more arguments to prove exegetically that God is promising life to Adam based on his obedience or disobedience, et cetera. But there's this underlying covenantal theology that Cox is embracing uh, that sometimes we also miss and lose and don't We don't recognize, oh, yeah, a man can't just do something and say, now, God, give me this in return. Mm. Um, God has to say, I will give you this reward if you fulfill these these kinds of commitments. So Cox's argument is based on God's promise of life to Adam, uh, which advances Adam beyond his created state to a covenantal uh, condition.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's always puzzled me a bit why people are so hesitant to admit that there's a covenant with Adam. I mean, you have a word from god stipulations sanctions there's even the sign uh in the tree you know the tree mm-hmm. of life exactly um so there's a kind of sacrament you know that that seals uh, the covenant um and of course you know there are other texts that speak about um, adam you know the covenant with adam uh which he broke and you know noah's a renewed covenant i mean there it's always puzzled me a bit why that why that's such a sticking point but it is an important i think to affirm because uh what what cox points out is that while we're we no longer have an interest in that covenant because of our disobedience. We all stand under its judgment. right? So the reason why we need a new Adam, a last Adam, a new covenant, is because we already stand under covenant sanctions in virt- just in virtue of being human beings uh, who yeah. are b- born into the world as sinful. So really, the whole structure of the, the biblical narrative kind of depends on this being something that's, that's, that's analogous and parallel to what the last Adam is accomplishing.
1: Right. And and Cox points out, you can give it different names. You could call it the covenant of creation. You can call it a covenant of friendship. You can call it covenant of works. Uh, the name is not the, the main thing, but identifying a covenant there is important for the reasons that you stated.
0: Yeah. And he also mentions, I'll just mention this in passing. He does mention also the, the um, eternal covenant of redemption, very brief section there, but uh, refers to uh, the pactum salutis, the um, covenant between the divine persons to uh, to decree and 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 uh, plan salvation, um, and then of course you have the covenant of works here in in the garden. Uh, what's going on with the Noahic covenant? How does Cox understand that one?
1: Yeah, Cox understands the Noahic covenant as God preserving the world um, in order to fulfill His promises. Um, man man's wickedness was spreading throughout the world, and so in order to preserve the line that would bring about our savior, Jesus Christ, God sends a flood to curb man's wickedness uh, and to, to, in, in many ways, um, stabilize uh, history for, for the sake of, of playing out um, God's purposes. So the, The Noahic Covenant is a—it's a short portion in Cox. Um, It's like you said; it's not really his focus because it's not the point of contention. Uh, But but he acknowledges this contributes to God's uh, the farther steps of God's moving forward His purposes in history. And as we've as you've already brought out very helpfully, it it's not just historically moving things forward; it's also increasing the revelation of of man's knowledge of God's intentions because the ark is a type, uh, and and all these things. And so it's Noah is promoting God's purposes and stabilizing the world for the fulfillment of those purposes.
0: Very good. So then we come to Abraham, which uh, I think, again, is the, the heart of the the, the treatise um, and really the heart of the debate between Baptists and Paedo-Baptists. Um, I mean, today there, there are, you know, some Paedo-Baptists, Reformed Paedo-Baptists who are um, willing to admit that the no, sorry, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God makes with Israel at Sinai, is in a sense a republication repub- of the original covenant of works with creation in Adam. I know that's debated among Reformed folk, uh, Pado-Baptists, but um, you know, certainly the, the New Testament clearly contrasts the New Covenant and the Sinai Covenant, like in Galatians. But it's really the question of continuity and discontinuity with the Abrahamic Covenant, that becomes the point of contention, right? So uh, just, just if you would briefly summarize what Cox is doing in this book in order to, to show how the Abrahamic covenant is related to the new covenant.
1: Yeah, that, that's the most difficult question because not only is it the majority of his book, but it's in many ways the most complicated part. Um, and before before I answer that question, there's an important correction to the text that needs to be made. If you're mm. reading the version that you have, the, the mo- modern edited republished version, there's a pretty important error that's been made in the updated language. It's on page 71. Mm. Uh, and in the in the text that's here, it says the covenant of grace made with Abraham was not the same for substance that had been more darkly revealed in the ages before. And I remember reading that years ago and thinking, what? And many people have asked me since then, what, why, why does Cox say that the covenant of grace revealed to Abraham in Genesis 12 is not the same for substance as the covenant of grace that had been revealed more darkly previously? What? We have two covenants of grace, different in substance? Mm-hmm. Well, it, unfortunately, it's, a, it's an error in the updated, the modernization mm-hmm. of the language. And Cox actually says, which is not to deny that the covenant of grace made with Abraham was the same for substance as that revealed before. So Cox is actually affirming that in Genesis 12, God reveals the covenant of grace to Abraham in a new and special way. And it's the same covenant of grace that God had revealed to the world, to Adam and to Eve and to Noah and to others, all the way up to Abraham. So that's an important clarification for readers who are going through this book and they come to the beginning. It's right at the outset of God's dealings with Abraham. And there's this, this one, one piece that needs to be corrected. And when I compare the, when I look at the old one, I completely understand why they misunderstood this point. And everything else, as far as I know, in the modernization is very good. But this one particular point needs to be clarified that Cox, and now we can move into answering the question. Cox's argument is that in Genesis 12, uh, God reveals the covenant of grace to Abraham in a new and special way in your seed, Abraham from you in particular and your family, will the nations of the earth be blessed. And so the blessing of the nations through the seed of Abraham, Cox says, that's the covenant of grace revealed to Abraham in a new way. And then later he will argue to say, distinct from this, or or, before I move on, he'll say, and Abraham is therefore included in that covenant as a believer Abraham believes that, prob- that promise. It's, it's revealed to him in a special way. He has a special privilege of knowing that it's his offspring, but he becomes part of that covenant of grace through faith, through his belief. And all others who believe like him are his children in the covenant of grace because they, they follow his example. They're like their father in the scriptures to do to imitate someone's works is to be their son, to to reflect them, to image them. So you are of your father, the devil, because you do the devil's works. If you were of your father, Abraham, you would do his works. What are they? Belief. So Abraham, in Cox's view, is the covenant of grace is revealed to him in a special way. He believes it and enters into it and becomes an example, a paradigm for all others to also believe and enter the covenant of grace. And then Cox will argue that God, separate from this, made a different covenant with Abraham and his natural offspring, according to the flesh. And this separate covenant, which he calls the covenant of circumcision, is subordinate and subservient to the covenant of grace. It's not running in a different direction. It's not doing something else, but it promises Canaan to the natural offspring of Abraham. And it promises the birth of the Messiah to the natural offspring of Abraham. According to the flesh, he will be born from among them and therefore circumcision marks the children of Abraham according to the flesh is a mark of the abrahamic covenant the, the covenant of circumcision not the covenant of grace but cox argues all throughout this is where it gets a bit complicated that the two go together they they run together at the same time and because the the abrahamic covenant or the covenant of circumcision is subordinate and subservient to the covenant of grace Circumcision and and related rites have a a double function or a double significance where not only, he, he puts it this way, the institution of circumcision, excuse me, not only seals the earthly promises to the earthly seed, but it also confirms to believers that the Christ will be born because the people according to the flesh are marked by circumcision. And so if their inheritance of Canaan and their multiplication in Canaan is assured by the mark of circumcision, confirming the promises to Abraham that likewise assures that Christ will be born and the nations will be blessed. And so the, the confirmation of the covenant of circumcision by circumcision becomes therefore also a confirmation of the covenant of grace um, for, for believers And so Cox spends many chapters, the majority of the book, clearly keeping those two things separate, the covenant of grace revealed to Abraham and made with him as a believer and all other believers and the covenant of circumcision made with Abraham as a father of a nation according to the flesh and all of them, uh, circumcised and, and yet how these two things are related, but distinct that that's Cox's argument, uh, in in a nutshell, And he and others before him would see John Owen as having set that up, but not followed it to its conclusion on Abraham. While they agreed with him on the Mosaic Covenant, they saw um, Owen's comments in his third Hebrews volume as Owen does this. he, He says, Abraham is the believer and all believers are his children. Abraham was a father and all his natural offspring are his children. And these two are separate and they have different promises made to them and such things. The Baptist said, look, that's our covenant theology. He's just said it. So, but but Cox knows Owen doesn't follow that through to a Baptist conclusion. Um, Owen would deny the Baptist conclusion. And so Cox doesn't use John Owen to, to make those arguments. Cox makes those arguments himself mm-hmm. to say, this is how we prove this. And, and this is why we think this. Um, and so if you get to Genesis 17, Cox sees these two covenants consistently always sort of interwoven or, or presented together. The first part of Genesis 17, Cox sees that as the covenant of grace. I will make of you many nations. Um, and then he says, God makes the covenant of circumcision to confirm that covenant of grace. Um, as for you and your offspring, you shall keep my covenant, et cetera, throughout your generations. Via circumcision. So, as simply as I can, um, with many more details involved, th- that's how I would present Cox's covenant theology a, a clear distinction between the covenant of grace and the covenant of, of circumcision, as well as a clear relation and typology uh, between the two.
0: Right. And he, as he points out, they're separated by 25 years. You know, there's a covenant that God's making in Genesis 12. That is, of course, related to what's happening later in, in Genesis 15, 17. Um, but circumcision only comes in after, which is, of course, Paul's point in, uh, in Romans 4.
1: Yeah. And also, um, there's an important question of how to translate Romans 4, 11. I don't remember if it's A or B, but Romans 4, 11, And God gave Abraham circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had in his uncircumcision, Cox says, no, that's not an accurate translation. And he uses John Lightfoot's commentary um, on 1 Corinthians to, to deal with this, where John Lightfoot says, Romans 4:11 should say, God gave Abraham circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which was to be in the Gentiles, which was to be in the uncircumcision. Mm. And so that's why Cox makes the argument circumcision not only seals the earthly promises to the earthly seed, but is a confirmation of the future blessing for the uncircumcision. Uh, and if you, if you agree with that translation of Romans four eleven Lightfoot's translation, which Cox quotes and uses in this book, um, then he goes back to Genesis 17 and says, this is the meaning of God giving circumcision to to Abraham. Uh, It's not, circumcision is not therefore the sign and seal of faith in the covenant of grace. It's the sign and seal that the nations will be blessed in one of your offspring, which is the covenant of grace distinct from the covenant of circumcision. Mm. So that Mm. passage plays an important role and Cox is saying, look, John Lightfoot said this. It's mm-hmm. not me. <laughs> you know, it's one of your exegetes who's reading scripture and saying, this is what these words mean. This is what Paul is saying. And, you know, what's really interesting is that that quote from Lightfoot only appears one other place in particular Baptist literature, and it's in the, the Confessions Appendix on Baptism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so that's a good argument to say, hmm, who's who's working in these documents? Um, Cox is the only person who's apparently using this passage, and it appears in Cox's Discourse of the Covenants and in the Confessions Appendix on Baptism, but that's a side note.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, If we could, uh, with the time we have remaining, let's sort of set this view of the covenants uh, in comparison and contrast with some other views. I mean, you know, our listeners are fairly diverse. I take it on some of these questions. They won't all necessarily be coming from the same perspective in terms of biblical theology. But it would at least help us kind of get clear on, you know, where, where do we position this? Uh, let's just start with uh, what we might call, again, more classical covenant theology that you would see, like in the Westminster Confession. How does Cox's view of Abraham contrast with, with that kind of covenant theology?
1: It would contrast very strongly with a, a Westminster covenant theology, because they would see God's dealings with Abraham as making the covenant of grace with him, and his seed after him, and marking them with circumcision, which they see as replaced by baptism. Circumcision and baptism being the sign and seal of faith, which is for you and your children. Uh, whereas Cox would say, no, we have two two distinct covenants being transacted with Abraham: one with him as a believer, and one with him as a federal head of his natural offspring. Um, so that would be that would be quite different uh, between on that point between Westminster Presbyterian Covenant theology and particular Baptist covenant theology. That would be the main point of contention. The covenant of works, not different. Noaic covenant, not, not different, maybe in a few details. There there are some Pado Baptists who would see the Noahic covenant as being an administration or an addition of the covenant of grace itself, which Cox doesn't really take that position, but that's not really as central to the argument at all, but it's not a point of contention uh, and it's not why Cox brings that up. So the, the Abrahamic covenant is the focus of yeah. the difference.
0: Is there? You'll have to help me. Uh, I'm genuinely um, confused by this. Is there a difference within Reformed Baptist circles between this kind of covenant theology we have in Cox and what's sometimes called 1689 federalism?
1: No, um, I don't. I don't follow Cox in every every point that he makes. Uh, I think that some of his Dividing this is the covenant of grace. This is the covenant of circumcision. I think at times he's too rigid in that application. Although I agree with his overall argument and and many of the details. So if you say is 1689 federalism the same as Nehemiah Cox's covenant theology? Pretty much, um, not not in every detail. There are Reformed Baptists whose covenant theology is different from Nehemiah Cox's. Where there are Reformed Baptists who would say that no, the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. It's just that now. God has made baptism based on profession of faith that, because that's his command in, in Matthew 28, and that's the example of the apostles we see. And so there are Baptists who, Reformed Baptists, who would take a different position. And Cox's position, uh, which is representative of the 17th century particular Baptists, the, maj- the vast majority of them, it's not enshrined in the confession. It's not, you must hold to this particular version of covenant theology in order to say, I subscribe. The Second London Baptist Confession. Um, Chapter 7 of the Confession on Covenant Theology is very broad. It it establishes the basics and the most important points of covenant theology, but it does not specifically propose Cox's model or the particular Baptist model. Um, So there's room for diversity within the Confession and just within Reformed Baptist circles for different points. But generally speaking, I would say. 1689 federalism and Cox's view are, you know, very much the same thing. Maybe not in, certainly not in every detail, but generally speaking, very much, very close. Right.
0: So like would, would reform Baptists in general um, speak of one substance and distinct administrations that kind of standard covenant theology?
1: Some would, some would. Yeah. We have to be careful though, because there are many, this is this is me speaking from experience so it's a generalization. There are many men especially of the generation of ministers before me who would speak like that but they don't speak like that because they're rejecting what we would call 1689 federalism. Frequently it's the case that they weren't aware of these sources. They weren't mm-hmm. aware of this tradition. They weren't aware of these arguments. It, it was not available for them. And so they're not choosing to use that language because they reject Something like 1689 federalism, but rather that's what they were taught. That's how they've understood and practiced things, <clears throat> and that that's where they are. And so we have to be careful while we acknowledge, yeah, there are there are Reformed Baptists who speak that way. Doesn't mean that there's this you know clashing of heads about that particular issue, right. and and I think that at times, probably my, myself even has we have overemphasized that difference and made it. Almost become a conflict that it didn't have to be. So we have Mm. to be careful about that.
0: Yeah. And just for our listeners who may not be familiar, I I use this term without really defining it, but what what is 1689 federalism?
1: In the, I briefly mentioned that there was a majority view among the 17th century particular Baptists on covenant theology. And what we've said about Cox is basically representative of that, namely that the Abrahamic covenant is not the covenant of grace and therefore. Children are not automatically included, and baptism is not the replacement. It is not the same thing as circumcision in a new form, et cetera. That is 1689 federalism in in many ways. Um, So the covenant of
0: grace then is is only fully realized in the new covenant. None of the other historic covenants would can be identified. Full stop. One to one. Correct. The covenant of grace.
1: Yeah, the covenant of grace is revealed in Genesis 3 and, and progressively revealed beyond that, and history is driving towards it, and the covenants are subservient to it, but the new covenant alone is the covenant of grace itself. And we call that 1689 federalism because it represents the, the vast majority of particular Baptists in the 17th century and the Man of the confession. I'm aware of one confirmed dissenting view from that. A second probable dissenting view from that, as opposed to a much larger body of persons. So I don't want to overstate it, but there sure. is a real majority, according to all of my uh, doctoral research and subsequent investigations into this. And so it's representative of the tradition in that time, but not necess- not um, <clears throat> enshrined in the confession.
0: Yeah, that's one of the one things I appreciate about this kind of work of recovering these Baptist sources is that it seems like previous Generations really had who wanted who were interested in covenant theology only had Presbyterian sources to draw on, and sure. so a lot of the categories just sort of you just sort of form fit with Presbyterianism. But we're now adding on uh, this difference in the new covenant. Whereas the 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 view of the 17th century, the majority view here is more more nuanced than that, right? There there are, there's a real difference here covenantally that 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 undergirds the Baptist position. So it's not it's not just like a uh, an add-on at the end, like right you know, with with believers' baptism, but it was already built into the covenantal structure already. Uh, one last one last question: um, How does this view then compare with another popular view that um, that I'm sure many of our listeners hold that sometimes referred to as New Covenant theology or or, or progressive covenantalism? Um, you know, which sees uh, maybe a bit more discontinuity between the old covenants and the new covenant. Um, how would you describe that that difference?
1: Yeah, I, <clears throat> maybe I'm wrong, but I, I see new covenant theology is pretty distinct from progressive covenantalism because I've appreciated Gentry and Willem's book, Kingdom Through Covenant, and their affirmation of a covenant that God made with Adam. Whereas in my mind, and maybe I'm wrong, in my mind, new covenant theology tends to deny a covenant with Adam. And so I would see most agreement between my, my view or 1689 federalism and progressive covenantalism. I think there's a lot to be appreciated about um, progressive covenantalism's understanding of typology uh, and and the discontinuities between the, the old and the new covenants. Uh, and I have a lot of things circled and appreciated in, in Kingdom Through Covenant. Uh, maybe I would make the arguments a little bit different in certain places. And I've, I've said in my review from many years ago, and I probably was... I'm prepared to write that review. But anyway, I, I said in that review that I, I, I wish personally that more classical terms were used by progressive mm-hmm. covenantalism to just keep more continuity in the tradition. If we speak the same language, I think we understand each other better. That, that That's how I wish things were. Uh, right. But in the substance of what's being affirmed, there's a, a great deal uh, in progressive covenantalism, quite a lot of it that I find to, to be sound uh, yeah. and and very much to be approved of. I find myself less agreeing with new covenant theology especially when it comes to a, a God's dealings with Adam um and especially with with matters relating to the law. I know that in in progressive covenantalism there would be some of those issues too, but I think it's more pronounced in in new covenant theology. And so those those would be areas of difference and and disagreement uh, but Quite, quite a lot would be shared as well. It's often difficult to say what exactly is new covenant theology? What yeah. is representative of it? Right. Whereas I think you have a bit more stable view of progressive covenantalism with something like kingdoms through covenant. Um, so I find it easier to talk about progressive covenantalism than I do new covenant theology. Yeah. And, and I want to be fair. If I say this is what they believe, you know, I should be knowledgeable about them. and I I want to be careful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it, those of you who may not be familiar with this, um, the book that that Sam's recommending, Kingdom Through Covenant, uh, by Peter Gentry and Steve Wellum, uh, and then there's a shorter version of it. I forgot the name of it that, that is available, would be a good place to to go to read about um, that view that's known as progressive covenantal, covenantalism. Um, and you're right, it, it is different than some earlier earlier iterations, but I think in some ways that sort it was sort of the growth out in some ways the growth out of what's called New Covenant theology. Uh, but so, maybe sometimes recovering some of the older categories. In any event, on baptism, I'm not sure there's that much difference in the argument. The, the real differences, as far as I can see, come uh, with the law, with the, the the Decalogue and the Sabbath and things like that. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, one last thing. What, what are some things you're working on now? Um, what you're researching? Um, you mentioned, you know, your your research on the Petty France Church. Anything our listeners can be on the lookout for?
1: Uh, Petty France part two is the main thing that I'm trying to finish right now. I uh, haven't had the time to do so really, but that that work is heavily drawn from untouched, unknown primary sources. Um, and so it's it's resourcement. Mm. It's saying Baptist history is not a dead field. It's not just secondary literature becoming tertiary literature. And he said, and then he said, it's no, it, there's real work to be done in the original uh, archive sources that are available in England. And that's where my Petty France research and other research is coming from. Similar to that, but nothing near publication is my research into Bunhill Fields, which is a a dissenters burial ground or the dissenters burial ground in London. Where John Owen is buried, you know, 15 feet away from Nehemiah Cox Mm. and 15 feet the other direction away from John Bunyan. Uh, All these men that we've been talking about uh, are buried there. And I've been doing a lot of research trying to recover John Rippon's research of Bunhill Fields. And so Bunhill Fields and the Petty France Church are my main focus uh, areas of focus for, for research and writing, but Petty France is really the writing interest right now.
0: Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for that. And this was enormously helpful. Thank you for coming on, Sam.
1: Thank you, Luke. I really enjoyed it.
0: All right. And we'll close as we always do with the grace. Uh, Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.